There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What turn did your life take at 21? Noel Moran was convicted of murder and served a life sentence. Now he goes back into prisons to provide wellness and health classes. We ended up going round to see a friend of ours. Um, this guy, he was a friend of mine, a friend of his. And when we got there, he attacked the lad and he stabbed him in the leg. And as a result of that, he passed away. So you're convicted of murder, despite the fact you say you didn't inflict any of the, the, the injuries to, to the victim who, who died. What was your sentence? So I got life with a tariff, minimum tariff of 15 years and my court defendant got 17 years. So, so two more years? Two years more for actually committing it. <laughs> so at no point did he accept responsibility? Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Noel, at the age of 23, was sentenced to life imprisonment, even though he was not responsible for the fatal stab wound that killed a man. He was released 15 years and two months later, at the age of 38, refusing to let his circumstances define him. Instead, he found solace in yoga, using it as a means of promoting wellness and inner peace, not just for himself, but for those around him too. During his time in prison, he developed a wellness program through yoga, which he taught to fellow inmates and staff, creating a sense of community and support that he felt was lacking. Now that he's a free man, he still goes back to teach others. Noel's dedication and passion for yoga helped him and those around him cope with the challenges of prison life. With his experiences, he discovered the power of mindfulness and self-care and is committed to helping others find the same sense of peace and purpose through yoga inside and outside. Let's find out a little bit about who who Noel is. So just give me a a, a kind of potted history of where you grew up, Noel, and what life was like for you as a young man growing up in wherever it is you grew up. Yeah, so I, I've grown up pretty much between back and forward between England and Ireland and it was probably more so tougher growing up in the kind of 80s and the 90s being Irish and growing up in London where the kind of height of the troubles and things were kicking off. Um, so just putting up with a lot of prejudice uh, for being Irish uh, really from a very young age found it pretty quite difficult. Um, 
but I managed to overcome that and didn't let it really kind of impact me in my own personal growth and developing myself. What, what do you mean that it was a, a troubling time for you? Because, you know, most people who are here in the UK will be aware, but also outside will be aware of the troubles, meaning, you, you know, the conflict between the IRA and the British establishment, etc. But what, 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 what do you mean? How did it affect you and your life? I think it was probably kind of prejudice within schools and kind of just a lot of racism within schools and just people having their kind of opinion it's kind of like you know most recently when the kind of um 9-11 things started to kind of kick off and people just had their negative perceptions towards muslims and you know people from the islamic background it was kind of like the same back then where if you were irish then it's you were put within the same category which obviously people just didn't really have an understanding of actually who was who and what was what and it was just driven by your accent because you had an Irish accent. They they classed you as being somebody who was a threat. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I was this small, little, tiny little kid, um, definitely wasn't a threat. <laughs> and what was it like for you? So, you know, that in itself is shocking that you were treated that way. But, you know, people from all different ethnic backgrounds have been treated that way and continue to be treated that way. And they're obviously tarnished with the same brush of individuals who do things that that hit the headlines and then everybody is kind of you know categorized in in the same way how did that affect your your schooling then and life in London when you were here it definitely got me into probably a lot of trouble within schools just in terms of my engagement and not really wanting to be there and I, I got brought up doing boxing from a very young age I started boxing at the age of four so I was, fortunately for me, and maybe unfortunately for me at times, that I was able to take care of myself. Um, so even though this did go on within school, it did go on within the playground, but I certainly wasn't one to stand by and let it happen. Um, so I tended to stick up for myself. What were the consequences of you sticking up for yourself? Getting expelled from school at a very young age. Um, so I got expelled at the beginning of year eight which then didn't really kind of help me in terms of an education. And then I couldn't get to any other school within the borough. I ended up going to a Prus, a special school for expelled students, where um, I only had to go two days a week, which kind of suited, suited me fine in a sense. But it was quite cheeky, really, because um, I probably haven't told my dad this, so if you listen to this podcast, he's going to hear it. So he used to drop me off at school. And I used to have a car parked out the back of the school. So even from an age of 13, 14, I used to walk through the front of the school, walk out the back of the playground, into my car, drive off for the day, and then I'd come back at the end of the day, park it at the back of the school, walk back in through the front, and he'd come and pick me up. So he'd think that I'd be in the school all day. <laughs> and you were able uh, to pull the wool over his eyes for so long. And if he hears this, he's going to know for the first time. Yeah, what, like, what, what? you were up to. <laughs> oh my God. What what was I mean, you, you talk about the sort of disruption that, that that you went through during your schooling and you just talked about, you know, how you walked through the front gate and out the back gate and then through the back gate back into the front gate, um, pretending that everything was was good. But but what was your parents' reaction to, to your behaviour getting expelled from school for fighting? You know, how did they try and manage your behaviour when you were behaving in this way? I've always had a really good upbringing for kind of from both of my parents and it was it was the same for them as well. Like my mom would get called names often, you know, walking down the street, my dad would get called names and probably my dad kind of like myself, he would stick up for himself. So it's, you know, from a parent side of things, when you see your father maybe sticking up for himself, then as a child, you probably think it's okay as well. So they kind of understood why you reacted the way that they reacted, whereas the authorities or the schoolmasters didn't quite get the, the, the issues, or if they did, they weren't doing anything to try and help. No. Well, the only thing they did to help was just not really, didn't really feel that you fitted in or didn't really feel accepted um, within the class, but when you're when you're in a school like a Prus anyway, they they call you the naughty kids. So you automatically just you have that label on yourself that you're a naughty kid. And actually, I wasn't really a naughty kid. Um, I just probably just rebelled against authority and rebelled against the system because I didn't want to be there. Hmm. 
And, and the car that you had at the back of the school, was that something you owned or was it a stolen car? No, it was something I owned. You owned a car, you owned your own car at 13, 14 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get pulled up in the car by the police or the uh, or anybody else? Luckily, at the time, like, I did get pulled up a lot throughout kind of growing up and uh, as I got older. But at the time when I was actually in the school, I didn't, um, luckily enough. And I don't know how, because I was a really small, young teenager as well. So like, if I was a police officer, he was definitely pulling me over. Where, where did it lead to then? So you were quite disruptive at school because of the racism and the bullying and, and the challenges that, that you faced being a young Irish man in, in England where people were perceiving people from Ireland to be, you know, troubled people. Where, where did it lead to? Did you end up getting in trouble with the law? Not, init- not initially. So I, I started going to a youth centre, which I really enjoyed. They were doing car mechanics there and so we got the opportunity to work on cows because cows were something that I really enjoyed doing and we built this big massive uh, beach buggy from scratch built all, the only thing that we didn't build was the engine so we got a Granada freely a Granada engine and stuck it in it and built the chassis built the frame built everything around it so that was pretty fun um, it's the wheelie when it used to take off so I would spend my days going two days in school and then I would do um, three days doing the mechanical work but then I just got to a point that I just didn't want to be in school anymore and I probably left school completely by 14 and didn't end up going back. How did your parents react to that? I think at the time it was it was probably different times back then I think if it was now then there'd probably be more there's more of a reaction on having more of a thorough education but it wasn't necessarily encouraged for me to try get into any kind of education or any kind of schooling or anything like that so it weren't the academic side of things that you were interested in it was the practical size building cars and working in cars um, and did that lead to a full-time job as a mechanic it didn't it got to from a, when I kind of each reached the age of kind of 15 16 I started working for a window company and um, doing double glazing but then I had an accident. I fell off a ladder, fitting a window one day. A window come out and smashed me on the head and broke my collarbone. I woke up some hours later in the hospital. It was quite funny because I woke up and I just had my mates standing around me. And the doctor there, the doctor's like, do you know where you are? And I'm like, hospital. And then the pain just kind of massively hit me um, to my shoulder. But I've always been wanting to do my own thing, not really wanting to work for anybody else. So at the age of 16, I started kind of planning how I can start to build my own business and how I can work for myself. And by the time I come 17, I opened up my own security company. Um, I got the idea from my uncle at the time. He had one of the biggest security companies in Ireland and I was watching his business and I was watching how well he was doing. I thought, okay, if he can do that, I can do that over here. But it didn't quite work out for me at the beginning because I'm this young 17-year-old director going into big companies, telling them I'm the director of this security company. They're looking at me thinking, you're a kid. So I, I went away and I thought, okay, I've got to change my approach a little bit here now. I've got to maybe come in from a different angle. So I changed my role within the company to the manager. Um, so then when I come in as the manager of the company, I soon started landing contracts because I think, okay, well, he's not the owner. So, you know, he's coming in as a representative. And how did that lead to contracts with these companies and what sort of security were you providing? So I, I specialize in quite a lot of different security. So it was more so construction sites, 24 hour security, um, close protection, CCTV, K9 units and stuff like that. Um, but from a business point of view, it was always the static 24-hour security that I was more interested in because that's you're always you're always at work. If you've got a guard on your site, or you've got two guards, one in the day, one at night, then you're you're getting paid 24 hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so it's a constant inflow. And, and was that something that that created some financial security for you, or was it a, a, a challenge getting the contracts to keep the company going? definitely a challenge because you have multiple other companies that try to undercut and it's really competitive business to really be involved with and I was I was doing pretty well 
with it really up until the age of 21 um i had in line some really big contracts who one of one of the companies i had they've done the pipe work for the channel tunnel and they were looking to be doing stuff within heifer airport and had i carried on going with that company i would have potentially landed massive multi-million pound contracts with them as well but unfortunately my life took another turn <laughs> And what turn did your life take then? So you're 21 years old. You were on the verge of securing some major contracts which would have been um, financially beneficial to you and the people that you worked with and employed. What turn did your life take at 21? So at this point, I was I was doing pretty well for myself. I was engaged to be married. Um, I was planning on moving back to Ireland probably say, six months later. And I was out for a drink with a friend one night and he got a phone call from people um, in the area who he had problems with. And we ended up going around to see a friend of ours. Um, this guy, he was a friend of mine, a friend of his. And when we got there, he attacked the lad and he stabbed him in the leg. And as a result of that, he passed away. Um, it hit the thermal artery and he died. And I got we we both got arrested for it, and we got caught up. I got caught up on a joint enterprise. Um, so even though I wasn't the one who actually committed the crime or didn't have any involvement within it, from a legal point of view, is from a joint enterprise is if you're there when a serious crime takes place, then you're equally responsible, as the prosecution put it. But that, so you and a mate went to. Uh, another friend's house just to be clear so the friend that you went to the house with he stabbed the person in the leg who subsequently died as a result yeah did you know he was carrying a knife with him at the time or did he pick up a knife in the house no he he had a knife within the back of the car and it was his car that we we was in and we just got pulled over i was driving literally five minutes before it happened I always think about this in terms of just reflecting on it because had I known that there was a weapon in the car, well, number one, I wouldn't have been driving, but I probably wouldn't have stopped either um, because normally any time I got pulled over, the police would search the car. But on this instance, they didn't search the car, but he was quite anxious. He really wanted to get out of there and he really wanted to get away from the situation. And at the time, I didn't really understand why, but I'm reflecting about it afterwards. Actually, well, he, I knew why he wanted to get out of there because he had a weapon in the back of the car and he knew that normally they would search the vehicle, but just unfortunately they didn't. I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, so you and your friend arrived at this other person's house. He got out of the car. He took the knife with him to the house and the fight broke out and he stabbed the other yeah. guy. But you had no involvement yeah. in that fight or that stabbing. No. I wasn't even in the house when it happened. Um, I heard screaming and shouting um, coming from the house at the time. And I ran, I ran in there and I could hear the screaming coming from the top, from upstairs. So I've run upstairs. And when I'm looking at the, the victim, bless him, he's, he's on the bed and um, the other guy is on top of him screaming and shouting at him. And then I'm shouting to let's get out of here, let's get away. At this point, I didn't realize that he'd been stabbed. He had a duvet over him. So when we got back in the car, there was a massive argument going on between us because as far as I was concerned, he was a friend and he, you know, he was a friend of both of us. So it was just really understanding really kind of what really went on, what was going on in his mind. But this particular guy, he was a bully. Um, he wasn't a very pleasant person anywhere. And I think he just, he went too far he, he not sticking up for him in any way shape or form um but he you know he didn't intend to kill him he's you know he stabbed him in the leg but unfortunately as a result of that it hit the thermal artery had it probably been a cent centimeter in any other direction um he probably would have survived how did you get arrested for that after after this offense happened we panicked we found out you know that he had passed away and I went back to Ireland. Well, we both went back to Ireland and it was about four weeks later, five weeks later, he got arrested. I left, I ditched him at this point. I thought I can't be around him any further. And then I arranged with the police for me to come back over and hand myself in because as far as I was concerned, it wasn't something that 
I thought that I was ever going to be found guilty for. I didn't even know that the law of joint enterprise existed um, in my mindset. You know, I know that I had no intentions to harm anybody and or certainly not to kill anybody. And I didn't lift a finger. So I never thought that I would be ever convicted. So I handed myself in and then found myself on romance, walking onto the wing of Warmer Scrubs for the very first time. <laughs> After the incident took place and you learnt that the um, the victim had died, why didn't you go to the police then to sort of set out your position? Because, as you say, you weren't in the house when the incident took place. When you did go into the house, you tried to stop what happened. In fact, you did, from what you said, stop what happened, got your friend out of the house. And then once you discovered that the... The, the, the person had passed away. What what stopped you going to the police and saying, look, this is what happened and this was my role. I was in no way involved. I think at the time it was probably just a serious lack of consequential thinking skills and just a panic as well. Maybe had we not probably just panicked and gone straight to Ireland, it would have been a lot easier to, you know, had I still been in the country, then I probably would have just maybe done that a lot sooner. Um, but I didn't want to hand myself in in Ireland either because it, it wouldn't be as easy. I would have to go through an extradition process and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd rather just bring myself back and hand myself in. In hindsight now, with how mature I, I've matured over the years, you know, because I say men mature in their 30s. <laughs> um, so hopefully I've, I've got to that point. Um, I would have certainly, well, I, I wouldn't have been there in the first place, or I would have found a way to get myself away from that situation. And I would have, yeah, I would have went straight to the police and just explained my situation, explained my circumstances. But I think it was just age, immaturity, naivety, and just not having the right kind of social and thinking skills really to be able to solve the situation. But you did, in the end, hand yourself in, at least after your, your, your co-defending, if I can describe him as that, um, was arrested. You handed yourself into the, the police. What were you charged with and what was your co-defendant charged with? Um, so we were both charged with murder. And um, so it's, it's quite funny, the law of joint enterprise. It's the police, like when you're, when you're charged, there's no such thing as a charge of joint enterprise even though it's a 300 year, year law and the Supreme Court have ruled that the prosecution have been abusing their powers within this particular law, more so within the last 30 years. But the, that was the charge. So it was really, I couldn't really comprehend at the time why I had been charged with murder. And I certainly never thought that I was going to be convicted. Um, but it's, it's quite funny, even though we were charged under a joint enterprise, we had separate trials. We, we were we were tried together initially, and then three weeks into the trial, the prosecution stopped the trial and said some new evidence has come to light on one of the co-defendants, and it wouldn't be in the Crown's interest to trial both defendants together, and stop both trials, and then had separate retrials. He got tried first. He got found guilty for the murder, and then I got found. I got tried separate and got found guilty under a joint enterprise. And when you were tried separately and convicted under the joint enterprise, you were convicted of murder, despite the fact that you didn't inflict any injury to, to, to the victim. No. It's always been said that he was the aggressor and that he was the one who inflicted the fatal blow. So why and how um, did you get convicted? I mean, I understand joint enterprise and I understand what happens in those circumstances. It's, isn't it sometimes that the prosecution... In joint enterprise cases, at least in some circumstances, where they can't identify the person who committed the actual act that they say one of the two did, was your co-defendant pleading not guilty to the offence and not accepting his responsibility? And did that create a conflict between the two of you in your cases? Yeah, he basically, he tried to shift the blame. Basically, everything that he did, he tried to throw it back on me and say that it was me. Um, but even though that didn't affect, it didn't have an impact within my trial because what he got, what he said didn't come out within my trial. But but even just in terms of having a fair trial, it was agreed with the prosecution. Because he got found guilty first, my defence made an agreement with the prosecution that 
that wasn't going to mention his conviction because obviously I wasn't convicted at his trial, even though we're tried on a joint enterprise basis, because it would have made my trial unfair if one person had already been found guilty. Then it would make obviously if it's a joint enterprise case, then it can only, it can only be one verdict. Um, so the prosecution agreed that, and then soon as the opening statement was this, they, they mentioned that McCord defendant has already been found guilty for murder on a joint enterprise, which therefore I'm equally responsible as well. And the judge allowed that evidence in. So you're convicted of murder, despite the fact you say you didn't inflict any of the 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 injuries to to the victim who who died yeah. you're convicted of murder what was your sentence so i got life with a tariff minimum tariff of 15 years and my co-defendant got 17 years so two more years two years more for, for actually committing it <laughs> so at no point did he accept responsibility no i'm not sure whether he has no further down the line but at no point throughout the trial did he accept any responsibility and what responsibility do you, or did you accept at, at the time and now, Noel? I think the responsibility I accept is that I drove there, even though it was unknowingly and I didn't know it was going to happen. And as a result of me even being there in the vicinity, whether that contributed to him going into the address, whether he would have done it on his own or not, maybe that might have had a contribution towards it. But there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about the poor lad who died. I think about him every single day and, you know, he should have never, ever lost his life. And especially for such something so senseless as well and something that I, I to this very day, I still don't really understand why he chose to carry out that attack. You know, that's something that he needs to really answer for and it's something that he's never really answered to, not even to me. So you were 21 at the time. How old was your co-defendant and the victim? The victim was, I think, 22, and my co-defendant was 23 or 24. So you're sentenced to life with a recommendation you spend a minimum of, of 15 years in prison. Is this the first time that you'd ever been arrested by the police and charged and... Yeah, my well, I, I had two minor convictions. I had one for a theft and one for a criminal damage when I was a teenager. Um, but in terms of any kind of serious charges, first, well, my first charge, my first proper kind of court, crown court appearance and my first time ever in prison. Joint enterprise is in itself a, a huge, um, as you say, controversy, you know, controversial kind of issue where people who are not even at the scene not even in the location of being convicted you know you hear of these stories of young groups of individuals where someone gets stabbed or some violence takes place and because they're associated with that gang or something they end up getting sent to prison you're sent to prison to serve 15 years you go to Wormwood Scrubs and I know it was a long time ago now but but can you reflect on what that experience was like for you for the first time? I know what Wormer Scrubs is like because I spent time in there myself, so I know exactly what it's it's like. But and this old Victorian in the in the centre of London, what was it like for you ending up in prison for the first time? It was pretty daunting. I remember walking on Airwing um, for the very first time, and you got your dungeons <laughs> down the end, and it was my first real experience of mental health as well. And I just looked around and I thought, is this a prison or is this a hospital? And just looking at people, like just serious kind of self-harm going on, people committing suicides and violence. The violence was actually probably worse from the staff than it was from the men themselves, sort of the attacks on the, on the men from the staff, which really, for me, at that very initial stages, in terms of recognising authority and respecting prison staff, when you walk along the landing and you see a member of staff assaulting somebody, then how do you look up to that person as a member of authority or how do you have any respect for them? Because they're not authentic leaders when they're basically doing the same crimes to what they're locking people behind the doors for. Yeah, and that, that, that is an issue and continues to be an issue, although I think you know it's been brought to the attention of the public and the authorities over and over again. And I think people like yourself who've lived the experience sharing insights like I do uh, about prisons, you, you know, people are more aware of the brutality and to some extent there are 
that, that there are things being done or have been done. And I know, you know, because I, I, I was one of the recipients of the brutality of the prison officers in Wormwood Scrubs, and we even won a legal case against the prison officers who used to brutalise us down in, in the segregation unit. And we were very successful in, in having that unit um, change. J- just talk to me a little bit about the 15 years that you spent in prison then, or, or the length of time of that life sentence that you spent in prison. I mean, did you, one, attempt to have your conviction overturned or your sentence reduced? I mean, how did you manage those 15 years? Even to this very day, it's a struggle because... After my conviction, um, two jury members wrote letters to my trial judge and saying that they were bullied and intimidated into reaching my verdict. And they said, this man is not a murderer. We made the wrong conviction. And basically they said that three or four other jurors also felt the same way. If that's the case, that was near enough half of the jury. It wouldn't even have been a majority verdict, never mind the unanimous one. I didn't find out this information. So... My trial judge received this information a couple of days after the uh, after the, the verdict. I got sentenced six weeks later, and they've told my legal team about it at the time, but they forbidden my legal team to tell me about it. So my legal team now are coming to me discussing possible appeal points whilst holding this information from me. And then eventually then the law chief justice, he gave permission for my legal team to disclose it to me but I can't see the letters or I can't look at the letters, can't have any contact with them or anything like that. And so within a month of me finding out, it's gone straight to the appeal court. It's bypassed the single judge, gone straight to the full court. And I went to court that day and they left me in the cells. They wouldn't even let me into the courtroom. But basically what the, the judges said within the court, they said, well, whatever happens in the deliberation process stays in the deliberation process. We're not willing to investigate it and basically for me to carry on. Didn't even look into it. They took no action despite the juries raising no. serious questions about the verdict no. that they made. But I had a really incompetent QC at the time. What they did say, there was no evidence of dissent from the jury when the verdict was being delivered. But there was. And had I been in the courtroom that day, I could have raised it. The evidence was that there were several jury members crying their eyes out when the, the verdict was being delivered. Because I found it pretty hard to find when you don't find someone guilty for murder and sit there and cry your eyes out. Uh, about it and then obviously the letters then followed after that but had my QC stood up and said yes there was evidence the jury were crying so that's enough evidence to suggest that they were unhappy with the verdict at the time and then that was followed by the letters I didn't find out any of this till after until I got back to well back to prison and I had follow-up conversation because my family were in the courtroom as well um, so they heard everything that went on I mean, I understand the, the, the law where jury deliberations are concerned, and it's one of those, again, con- controversial kind of issues about whether we should or shouldn't be allowed to investigate what goes on in the deliberations room. But given that the juries had written letters to the judge, and the judge knew this before he sentenced you, the fact that they tried to withhold this information from any kind of appeal process um, seems, seems shocking. Um, and the fact that even though they were aware of this information, they decided that nothing further should be done. I mean, how did that make you feel? And, and what could you do about that, if anything? It's, it's a difficult one because probation don't recognise giant enterprise. So when you're, telling, when you're trying to explain your circumstances to probation, all they see is the conviction is murder. So initially, for very first stages of, of my sentence, it was, oh, well, you're in denial, you're not admitting to the offence. I'm, I'm not admitting to the offence because I didn't commit the offence. The offence says it's a single stab wound. So we both didn't stab him. So it's one of us that did it. So And it's always been suggested that he was the instigator. He was the one who committed the fatal blow. So what is it that you really want me to kind of admit to? And But even from the jury side, like from my, you know, for myself and for my family, it's the prison service have always said, well, we have to go on what the verdict says. And I'm like, well, this is actually what the ver- the real verdict actually is. But they just don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They, they dismiss it. So how did you cope in the years that you were in prison? I sh- for the first couple of years, I, I found it really difficult. I struggled a lot just trying to, f- you know, a young man setting off on this long journey. And 
I got offered counselling and I thought, okay, do you know what, I'm going to take this. Maybe it might just help me um, in terms of my situation, be able to deal with things. Three years later, they come back to me and said, oh, we've got you on the waiting list for counselling now. And I thought, well, pff, keep it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it at this point. But what the real kind of changing point for me was, was actually from a dream. Um, I had a dream one night that I was doing a vigorous yoga sequence yoga i didn't even have a clue what yoga was it was a lot of yoga smoga it's you know as i said i got brought up doing boxing a completely different end of the scale but somewhere embedded in my subconscious just waiting for me to retrieve it was a new way of life a new calling for me that i really wanted just to have a look at you know what why did i dream this because i've never even seen a yoga class i've never even seen a yoga sequence so it's definitely to be dreaming about one i found it quite intriguing so I went down to the library and I started to research the mental benefits and the physical benefits. And I thought, actually, do you know what? This is a bit of me. I'm going to try it. And then after about six weeks, I attempted a practice of Ashtanga Yoga, the primary, a primary service. So it's basically it's a strong flowing sequence. And I say an attempt because that's what it looked like at the time. But I just remember having a connection to myself, my mind, body and soul, something that I'd never experienced before, which set me on a path that really kind of shaped and balanced me and gave me a sense of calmness and ease throughout my whole entire sentence from then on. What did you do prior to discovering this this yoga practice and the dream that came to you that drove you to to, to practice yoga? What what had you used as a mechanism to cope in the, the, the years before? I think just in terms of educating myself and probably just being mentally strong and stubborn as well because... When I come back from my verdict, I remember it clearly. I was in, I was in shock, and a couple of my friends come into the cell and they just basically said, "How are you?" And at that point, I was in complete shock, and I was like, "You know, I'm okay, I'm okay." And then one of them mentioned my mum, and then as soon as he mentioned my mum, that was it. I just burst out in tears, and I must have probably cried, probably about ten buckets of tears, and because I remember my mum screaming in the courtroom when the verdict was delivered, and that just that really resonated with me at the time and that really hit me and that night I made myself a promise I said I'm never going to shed a tear for the system again I'm going to beat this and I made myself that promise that I'm going to educate myself to the best of my ability and do whatever I can and I went through my whole entire prison sentence without shedding a tear don't get me wrong I sh I've, I've uh, shed my fair share after getting out but I've I had to keep that mental promise to myself to just remain completely strong and keep myself positive throughout. And thankfully, that's exactly what I did. After a few years, you took up yoga. Where did that lead to? So I started with my own practice and that developed into a daily practice. And I really kind of got myself into it. And this is something you were doing in the prison cell that you were in? In the prison cell, yeah. Just learning from books. Um, every, everything that I've learned has been from a book and I got to a point after a few years I found that my I'm no longer doing a life sentence I managed to somehow free my mind even though you know I knew I was incarcerated but and you know yourself you know the system does throw a lot at you I was constantly poked and prodded pretty much every single day and I would describe prison as mental torture but I've managed to take away the mental aspect of it and I think I got to a point where I could help others as well. I was doing a lot of mentoring roles around safer custody and violence reduction and listener roles where I was really making a massive impact on people's lives. And with that, then I, there was a couple of groups of guys in particular who were prolific self-harmers. And I thought, you know, I'd like to just share some of my meditations with them just to see if it's going to have any benefits. So I started doing just simple one-to-one -one meditation classes with them. And after a couple of weeks, they were coming back to me and they were saying they haven't self-harmed, they haven't had any thoughts of self-harm. I'm like, wow, you know, I was nowhere near a practitioner at this point, but I've managed to pass on something that I've learned myself and it's working for other people as well, which really kind of opened me up to a new path that actually, you know, this is a path that I want to follow and... I then got it in my mind that I want to be a yoga teacher. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because as I reflect on my time in prison, I mean, in, in the early 
first couple of years I used yoga as a means of escape as well and to keep my body physically capable um, and then over the years kind of practiced it kind of on and off but but kind of kept it a, not quite a secret because there was times when a yoga teacher would come in and I'd attend a class like other people but I didn't take it very seriously um, I mean I, I, I could carry out lots of the, the the sort of positions and other people but I wanted to ask you this, you know, it, 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 you know, doing something like yoga, being mindful in prison, in that environment where most people don't take up these kind of avenues, it can be frowned upon by other prisoners, or at least the person who has taken it really serious, becoming very mindful and conscious of their own well-being. It, it can be frowned upon by other prisoners who might look at you as being a, a soft touch or something or another. I mean, how did you manage manage to to navigate that kind of path? Well, when I started doing the physical aspect of the practice um, with the men, um, I bet I was running classes all over the prison. And initially you would have some people, oh yeah, no, yoga, it's not for me, or it's for women, or it's, you know, just to have their own perception of it. And then I'd be like, okay, come along and try it. And what I would do for the guys who were kind of, you know, a bit loud or a bit reluctant or wouldn't take it serious, I would step it up a notch because I was in really good physical shape myself. And so I would bring them through a, a serious workout where they wouldn't be able to talk or they wouldn't be able to mess about because they'd have to concentrate so much on their breathing and concentrate so much on their body movements. And then by the time it actually come around to the meditation and the rela relaxation aspect of it, they couldn't wait for that part because they, you know, they put their body through their paces, and that was a well-deserved rest and relaxation for them. And I've did over four thousand hours of teaching between staff and residents within prisons, and when when I was a prisoner, and I only recall one negative, um, and it and it didn't turn out negative in the end. There was one guy who was being quite disruptive within the class. And I'm sitting there now and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to resolve this and I've got to resolve this as a teacher and I've got to resolve this with compassion. And where back in the day, then it probably would have, you know, would have been a different, different kind of story. Um, so I just stood up and I just, I threw love and kindness at him. I said, you know what you need, mate? And he's like, what's that? I said, you need a hug. And he just, what? <laughs> but everyone else in the class, they're looking, what, what do you mean you need a hug? I said, that's what you need. I said, you need a hug. And he got, he's like, what do you mean? So I, I put up my arms. I said, come here, give me a hug. And he's walked over and he actually did it. He put his arms on me, give me a hug. But you know, it completely disarmed him. He didn't know what to do with it. And the rest, the, the whole dynamics of the class completely changed. And he come up to me afterwards and he apologized. He said, look, I'm really sorry. He said, look, I'm just not going for a good time. And he said, he said, thanks. He said, you, you know, even just having a hug and just, you know, you show me that kindness just really made a massive difference um, for me which was quite a powerful moment for me as well as, you know, as a man, as a prisoner and, you know, to just call someone out where normally to be fisticuffs and I'm like, you need a hug, mate. It's probably something that no one else in that room, not even myself, has ever heard from anybody else. <laughs> How supportive were the prison authorities um, in, in, in what you do? I mean, I'm just trying to gauge, you know, how they reacted to you, a prisoner, running classes with other prisoners and you mentioned that staff were then partaking are participating in these these classes initially there was a lot of blockers there was a lot of staff wanting to block me doing it they were saying oh well you're not a qualified teacher you're a prisoner and basically you, you can't do this um so secretly at the time then i contacted various different yoga schools and i was determined that this is what i want to do and it was actually the more of them telling me that i couldn't do it i wanted to do it even more and so I contacted a school and I explained where I was within my own personal practice and my teaching. And I did a level four yoga teacher qualification with them. So it was like 10 written exams and um, somebody had to come in and um, assess me doing a practical assessment as well. And I flew through the whole lot of it. I turned probably a two, three year course into a six month course where I it, it was my hobby. It was something that I studied all the time anyway. So I didn't find it too difficult to be able to fly through. And when I went back to staff, I said, right, I'm qualified now. Has anyone got any issues with me teaching? Um, they, they, they didn't really know how to take me because they didn't even know that I was doing a qualification in the first place. Um, but there was one particular governor and uh, the deputy governor at the time, he was, 
he's probably the best governor that I've ever come across within the prison service. And he was really on board in terms of promoting growth within people and just giving people chances and opportunities. And he allowed me not only to start my classes back up, he turned my job into a paid position. So I was now a paid yoga teacher within the prison, going around all the different departments and delivering multiple classes um, pretty much every day of the week. So it, it was a good work experience for me because I was a senior teacher before I even got out of prison. When did you get out of prison? How long did you actually serve? So I served 15 years and two months in the end. So I was, only, I was two months over tariff, which, as you know, people doing life sentences is not bad because, you know, I, it could have been a lot worse. I could have gone years and years over. And I... When I, when I found myself within, just as I was coming to before my DCAT, I wanted to kind of look at my future and what I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be a yoga teacher, but I wanted to make something different with it as well. I wanted to bring something around my lived experience and my experience of working with people with complex needs. And I wanted to take the guys on a journey not just coming to one class because I've seen the benefits that one class had done for people and I wanted to make that more beneficial for them. And so I come up with the idea of writing my own 10 week mindfulness-based yoga program. And it was, I was in my cell, the small little cell on the wing at the time. And I started drawing out a mind map because I just needed to get these ideas out of my head. It was, this was on an A4 piece of paper. And then that wasn't big enough, so I had to stick another piece, then another piece, and another piece, and then I had like about 30 pages of this mind map just stuck together, and it was like hanging off the bed on the floor, and I just keep having to turn it around and moving it around, and, but after a couple of weeks of writing it, I thought, you know, this is it, this is the, this is the program, this is what, this is what I'm going to do, my vision was that one day I'm going to bring this back, and I'm going to change lives with it, and that's exactly what I'm doing with it now, and I work jointly with an organization. I started managing a company, Pena Reform Solutions, when I was in prison, when I was in a DCAT. And that's an organization that goes into prisons up and down the country, creating growth projects and doing a lot of different types of training with staff and the residents. Um, so with with that company, I, I continue to manage the company today. Um, but I've just recently now set up my own business, Nola Yoga Wellness and Training, where I bring a completely different style of training to organizations and to prisons. So it's not just the yoga course itself. It's if I'm training stuff around, say if it's trauma informed or whether it's motivation interviewing or whatever it may be, I bring a, a whole type holistic type approach to that training. So it's not just about giving you the skills of what you need to speak to people. It's actually giving you the skills of actually what you need to deal with your own stuff and your own baggage and your own traumas and stuff that's going on to make you the best practitioner or to make you the best person that you can possibly be. And is it just for people in prison or is it for organisations and corporations or groups of people on the outside as well? The, the course itself that I've designed, that's specifically designed for people within prisons. Um, but the training and the work that I do, it's it's in multiple different fields. It's up and down um, different sectors. So it's criminal justice sector, charity sector, kind of corporate well-being, whatever that may be. Like, I believe that everyone deserves, you know, a sense of well-being and to experience a sense of joy and peace. And if I'm able to facilitate that and give that to them, then I don't really care what sector that really kind of falls in. Um, as long as it really aligns with my values and... I can help them grow then count me in so this is more than than just going into a classroom full of individuals who want to bend their bodies in particular ways and then spend a bit of time meditating um in order to calm their their thinking and, and their behaviors and, and their physical being G give me an example of of, of, of the benefits that an individual will get from the program that you use in these environments so it's 10, 10 different sections, so 10 different modules within within the course itself. And a lot of it covers a lot around mental health. 
Um, a lot of it covers stuff around self-harm. It covers stuff around breaking habits, stuff around sleep and depression. So it's not just, yeah, here's some yoga moves or here's some mindfulness techniques. It's actually getting them to understand their own mental health. It's getting them to understand areas of self-harm, areas of depression, the acceptance, how they can break habits and all that kind of stuff. So the first course that I taught, um, I remember... The, the delegates pretty well on there and the guy there was one guy in particular he suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome he couldn't get out of bed till two or three o'clock in a day and like i went and spoke to staff and i said you know i'd really like to get him on the course and I said like he won't even get out of bed he won't engage he won't get on it i said let me speak to him and let me see if i can get him on the course and when i spoke to him i managed to persuade him to come along and a couple of weeks into the program he come up to me and he said no he said thanks he said i've got my life back i said what do you mean he says he said, I've been on medication for eight years. He said, I've come off my medication. I'm getting up at six or seven o'clock in the morning. I'm going to the gym. I'm working. Like, I know that I can't put it down to the course to have that, to work that quick within that short period of time. But somewhere it's, it's triggered something psychologically with him to give him the motivation that he needs. In terms of sleep, sleep is improved by 100% by an all participants within the program um, self-harm there was no thoughts or there was no self-harm at all throughout the program itself there was one guy who um, he was got suffered from schizophrenia he used to constantly hear voices he found within the yoga classes the voices slowed down um, and within the relaxations and meditations sometimes the voices stopped completely which for him, that was something new, something since he started experiencing that form of mental health, he hadn't experienced that before. People with ADHD, they've never been able to sit still. One guy said, you know, this is the first time in my life that I can ever remember that I've been able to sit still without moving. So, you know, it's, it's got a massive, powerful range from all, all sorts. And that just really drives me and it makes me want to do it even more. I've delivered four courses this year already so it's four back-to-back 10-week programs which is a marathon and it's taken its toll but you know when i sit there in the session and when you've got a group of hardened men talking within these sessions and they're talking about their trauma and they're talking about their mental health and it just the mask just comes off and and you see that real care inside and you see the human side to them and how much they want to support each other and develop each other. And for me, it's like, you know, when you get the proud dad moment, like I've got these harder men in the car. No, look at this, look at this. Is this right? Is that right? And and I'm just sitting back and I'm thinking, you know what? I created this program when I was in your situation. And like, it does feel quite emotional when I do it. And like, I had one of my colleagues with me and like, I was just saying it to her, I was just like, you know just how powerful it is and she can see it herself as well just how powerful it is to see that that you've passed this on to somebody who you was in their exact situation when you wrote the program yourself and do you think that's what i mean it sounds like that's one of the biggest drivers when you were in that environment you know in especially in the early days where you were having mental health issues yourself because of the sentence that you've just got at such a young age and you were looking down the the lens of 15 years in in prison and you found something to help you cope throughout those years i mean a couple of questions really i mean were you in that position where you were self-harming where you were going down the route where there was nobody helping you get away or escape the things you were inflicting on yourself and you found something to help you cope and you wanted to share that or was it just you know you saw this as an extension of what you could do to help people i think i i've I've never gone down the the route of self-harming myself um probably I just couldn't do that to myself or my family in that instance but that doesn't mean that I didn't go through the same you know feeling the same and the same frustrations um because back in the day there was no one to tell me it was going to be okay there was no one to give me hope there was no one to show me light at the end of the tunnel and if I'm able to do that with people because as you know you having that lived experience and being gone through it yourself we instantly connect to people within the system and I remember after six weeks after being out of prison, I went into Bristol prison for the first time and I wanted to just speak to some of the men that I wasn't delivering anything. I just wanted just to share some of my journey with them and just to try inspiring and give them some hope. And there was a couple of young lads there that were 21, 22. They just got found guilty for murder. They were looking at 25 and 30 years the following week. 
And I just had a 10 minute conversation with them. And one of them come up to me after the conversation. And he said one word. I said, what's that? He put his hand, give me a touch. He says, he says, hope. He says, that's what you've given me. And I just walked out of that prison with the biggest smile on my face, even though it was sad to see, you know, the environment and stuff like that. But to know that a 10 minute conversation with someone that's getting a 25, 30 year sentence and you can give them hope, then what else can we do? You know, if we're really engaging with people, if we're really helping people grow and develop and we're training them, then you can do wonders with that. It's incredible, Noel, uh, and I wish you all the best with, with, with the projects and programmes. And I hope, you know, we, we've talked about my foundation and, and your supporting and collaborating with my foundation with the work that you're doing. How did you cope after 15 years getting out back into society where things have changed so much? Uh, how did you find the, the reintegration back into society and the support network around you, etc.? Thankfully, I've got a good support network of family and friends, but it hasn't been easy. It's it probably this last few months, it's got easier, um, but I've only been out of prison um, a year and a half. So it hasn't hasn't been very long itself, but it's it's finding that sense of belonging where you belong in the world. Everything, everything has changed. Everything is different. And the person you once was and the people you once knew don't exist anymore everybody's changed everyone's got old everybody's getting on with their lives and it's just really kind of finding your niche and where you kind of adapt and what i have found probably the most triggering thing really is probation i've gone through a lot of stages with probation that you know because they want to bring up all wounds they want to bring up all stuff and i've had to say it to them a few times myself i said look you know, I want to keep this strength based. I want to keep this about growth. I want to keep, you know, I want to move forward. I want to kind of put whatever's happened in the past behind and just to help me develop. Because even in terms of my work and the things that I do, there's been many barriers put in the way that not wanting me to even carry out my line of work. Um, but I've really had to fight and challenge to get to where I have to be in terms of that in itself. It's really interesting. I mean, 18 months you've been out of prison after 15 years of being in prison, no doubt near the end of that 15 years, you were going to the lower category prisons, which probably meant that you were entitled, whether you got it or not, to some home leave where you get out um, for short periods of time or you work in the environment. But I'd be interested, and I'm sure others would be interested, Noel, um, in in the humane side of, of your existence. In other words, you mentioned building trust and relationships with with people. How's that been for you since you've been out of prison? Because no doubt these things are challenging for you because it's difficult to build relationships with people who are not already in your life on the outside. So how has technology, relationship building, trust building, um, and, and just existing on the outside after so many years in prison? Because you know, some people think it can be so alien that it's impossible to do. Some people sort of say, well, actually, you know, you can live a life in prison, which means your transition back into society is not as challenging. You know, I often use an example of, you know, there's no handle on the inside of a prison door. So, you know, learning the behaviour, opening the door again is one of those conditions that can be quite challenging. You know, sleeping in a single bed and now you have the option of sleeping in a big double bed or sleeping beside someone if you've not slept beside someone for for so long and as a lifer you often spend most of your time in single cells or at least I did I don't know if it was the same for for you so just that transition back into society I know we spoke about it a little bit earlier on but the building of relationships and trust etc how are you managing that well let's just let's just say tech wise I'm still adapting to tech um side of stuff especially like online training and stuff like that as well it just I, I, I don't think I can deliver anything online without having a technical difficulty of some sort. <laughs> but that's something I'm just going to have to learn and adapt as, as, a, as I go along. Well, um, for what it's worth, most people can't, even though they've been using technology since its existence. It's, it's difficult in terms of relationships. Like With my family, it's we you know I love my family to bits and they love me, but just being having that void been away f- from them for so long it's it does it does have a, it does have an impact because you're not as close and you're not you know they've gone with their lives and they've been living their lives for 15 years and all of a sudden 
I'm back into that life. And it's, it's just like, where do I fit in as a son? Where do I fit in as a brother? Where do I fit in as an uncle? Um, kind of within all of that. And then I think, yeah, just see in terms of kind of intimate relationships and stuff like that as well. Probably initially it was, you know, you don't really want to kind of tie yourself down. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to build a relationship because you haven't been in one for so long either. So it's just really getting used of spending time and spending so much time with somebody because, as you said, we've been in a single room for so many years on your own that you're not used of having other people around you. And with with authority, like with probation, like I believe there's a lot of good people within probation, but I think the system as a whole is a failing system. And you've got a lot of people more so at the top that they kind of bout these orders down to, um, to the probation officers and they have to carry out the work, they have to put risk assessments on people or they have to make decisions that and not the correct decisions at all for that person in particular. And I, I appreciate you know, there's different risk involved with different people. But I think if you want, if you're going to build a relationship with somebody, that person needs to be the decider in terms of what, what they can do with your life, not somebody above them or somebody above them who has never met you or doesn't have any understanding of you. And, you know, when I go back to that copy and paste culture, um, where they're just reading historical documents that's been just copy and paste throughout so many years. It, it, no one's really getting an accurate, accurate fact of what's going on. And I suppose what I find in the system as well is you, you go through the system of you know that they don't trust you. You know that everything that you say to them, they have to check out because they, they, they believe you're lying. Um, or or it's not the truth, so they have to check out every single word you're saying. And I suppose I find that with myself as well. Everything they said to me, I don't necessarily believe it either because trust works both ways. You can't you can't trust a person if they don't trust you. It's so interesting. What what does the future hold? I know it's very um, short since you've been released, and and you have plans and you've plotted some plan. But what do you hope? the future over the next two to three years will look like for you? It's probably a good thing or a bad thing, depends how you look at it, but I'm extremely ambitious in terms of wanting to achieve my goals. And when I set off writing the my mindfulness yoga program, my intention was that I want to bring it national, I want to bring it everywhere. And that that's on my mind, that's something that I will achieve. And I'm already in the process of, of doing that, but I think probably just not being so hard on myself, you know, when I, I often sometimes sit there and think that, oh, well, I should, should have done this or I should do this or I should do that. But actually, when I reflect upon it, I've been out a year and a half. Um, I'm in a good job. I've got my own business. I've got my own place. I've got a nice car. I am doing well. I've got good support around me. And so actually on reflection, you know, I'm changing lives pretty much every day of the week. Like I was, I was, I wasn't well last week and I was lying on my sofa and I got a message off someone on Instagram. It was a family member of somebody who I'd been delivering training with in prison. And it just really kind of just bounced back to me why I do what I do. And like he said, look, just want to reach out to you. I've been following you for a while. And he says that, um, you've been training my cousin, um, within such a prison and, he said that you've really had a massive difference on his life and that you've showed him that, you know, that you can achieve anything, um, no matter what your circumstances are. And you've really had to motivate him and give him positive change. And, you know, I'm lying to myself for feeling sorry for myself and I'm reading this now. It just really kind of just bring me up and I thought, yes, you know, just reinforced. This is why I do what I do. You know, when you can, when you can lie back and a family member that you don't know can contact you and, you know that you're still having an impact on people's lives even by not doing nothing. <laughs> and that's really good to hear. But I also saw that you gave a TEDx talk quite quite recently. I mean, that's quite an achievement, 18 months out of prison and you're already speaking to a wider audience about who you are and what you do. That must have been very inspirational for you and for those that were listening to your talk. 
Yeah, it was. It was um, it was pretty daunting because um, I do quite a lot of public speaking and I don't really find much of it quite daunting at all. But I think just being on that red dot doing your TEDx, it was it was pretty daunting kind of build up. So I had to use my mindfulness techniques um, before I went on stage. <laughs> but I yeah, I just wanted to do it just to really kind of show people that it doesn't matter what environment that we're in it doesn't matter what we're going through in our lives if you believe in something and if you want to achieve something within your life then you can always pick up your torch you can always get on your horse and you can gallop your way to the end of that tunnel that was my message that's brilliant and and that's such an important message to end on Noel thank you so much for um for sharing your story in such detail and talking about stuff maybe you've never spoken about before and I'm sure those listening to this will take away exactly what it is that you're 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 delivering if somebody wanted to get in touch with you or 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 you know prison authorities listening to this or or any organization listening to this wants to get in touch for you to maybe bring your program to to their space how can they do that um good way probably best way to contact me would be on linkedin so if you just look me up on linkedin i'm quite easy to find and it's noel moran on linkedin yeah and 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 will they find you under the penal reform solutions or your own so they'll see me uh, norma Moran, um director of nola yoga wellness and training no thank you very much enjoy the rest of your day doing very many other virtual calls but thank you for coming on the podcast no problem you too cheers Thanks for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for the Second Chance podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.